I know looking out that some of you have been there, so you know the, the rich blessing it is to be at family camp. We went out Friday night, came home uh, last night about 4 o'clock, and uh, yeah, half of our church is up there. I think there was uh, 135 to 140 this year, so that's up from what it has been in the past. So uh, you could just see the excitement on everybody and the joy it was to be there. But it's good to be back here this morning and delivering God's Word to you. Take your Bibles and turn to Haggai. Haggai, it's the third book from the end of the Old Testament after Zephaniah. Haggai, chapter 2. It was G. Campbell Morgan who shared this insightful comment about the text that we are considering this morning. Just listen. It is always futile to judge the value of God-appointed tasks by the appearance of the hour in which they are done. If they are appointed by Him, that is enough for us to know. For God is ever moving towards the higher, the grander, the nobler, and will do such until he has wrought out the final perfection of his will. Amen and amen to that. This is very encouraging to know and of which to be reminded because we do forget. Sometimes we're involved in something and it's not all that spectacular as we look at it. But let me remind you that if it's a God-appointed task, then it will be everything that God intended it to be. And you certainly see that In this passage of scripture, Haggai chapter 2, the first nine verses. So follow with me as I read those verses. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, And to the remnant of the people saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and also the dry land. I will shake all the nations And they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This word came 27 days after the leaders and people had resumed the work of rebuilding the temple. You see this by comparing verse 1 
with verses 14 and 15 of the previous chapter. It seems that early on there was discouragement about the temple as revealed by the three questions Yahweh asked in verse 3. It says there, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? These are sort of rhetorical questions by nature. As God knew what was in their hearts. He knew what what they were thinking. And maybe he had heard complaints from the people. And so he addressed this matter head on and very quickly. Now Yahweh could have said to the leaders and to the people these words. You know why it doesn't look that great right now. Or may not be like it was before. I mean think about it. They had neglected the work for 16 years. It's no wonder it looks like the way it does. And even the materials that were to be used for the temple may have been used by the people to panel their own houses. But you know something? God did not say those words to them at all. Instead, grace was extended As seen in the rest of this text, it was all about encouragement to them. That's what this passage is all about, encouragement. What I find interesting is the day which God chose to convey this message of encouragement to them. Look what it says there in verse 1 again. On the 21st of the seventh month, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now, in reading that, that means nothing to most of you, even myself. But the event that occurred in the seventh month was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze. This would have been on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the very day when Solomon had dedicated the first temple many years earlier. And so in this celebration... God looked to lift up the spirits of the people in this work. You know, beloved, all of God's people need encouragement at times in the work of the Lord, don't we? We sure do. Often. This is because there are many things that sidetrack and distract our hearts in any given moment and leads us to discouragement. I like what Paul said to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Listen to these words. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Yeah. And so what did Yahweh, what did He say to the leaders and the people That then was a blessing and should encourage our hearts today as we think about this passage. Because what is said here wasn't just for them, it's for us. So what did he say to them that should encourage and bless our hearts? Well, I want you to consider with me three promises. Three promises concerning God's care and guidance of the people. 
so that you will remain encouraged in the work of the Lord. Encouragement here comes through these promises that you find in this text. And the first promise is captured there in verses 4 and 5. Follow with me as I read. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So what do you notice here in those verses? What's the promise? Be encouraged by God's presence. Be encouraged by God's presence. This is a repeat of what God said through the prophet earlier. Remember? Back up in chapter 1, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. As you remember, when we were looking at that passage, the people had committed to obeying the Lord in getting back to the work. And thus he reassured them of his presence. So important. Well, now in our present passage, as they are resuming the work, Yahweh promised his presence again. Only this time with more zeal. To encourage them. And I certainly can understand that. Especially those who were older. Because as he says in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? For those who were older who saw the temple. How it was destroyed. Yeah, their hearts are down. So these words certainly were spoken with more zeal to encourage the hearts. Three times, the people were told to do what? Take courage. Take courage. Take courage. Or be strong. For I am with you, declares the Lord. That's why. And then he goes on in verse 5 by saying, My spirit is abiding in your midst. This reminds me. Of something that Zechariah stated in chapter 4, verse 6 of his prophecy. And by the way, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. So they were speaking as prophets to Zerubbabel and that group of people at that time. And it was Zechariah who said to Zerubbabel, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, this had been a promise from the Lord since the people came out of Egypt. That's what it says there in the first part of verse 5. And so it should have brought relief of any fear in their hearts. Since with this guarantee came what? His protection. With His presence came protection. Two weeks ago, I shared the example of what God told Joshua in that first chapter of Joshua. But I want you to turn with me now to Nehemiah chapter 4. Holding your space here. Turn to Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah chapter 4. Some of you may not realize this, but after the exile, the people returned in three stages. The first stage was to rebuild the temple, as Haggai is addressing. And then Ezra was to come back with a group of people to restore true worship in the temple. And then finally, Nehemiah was to come with a group of people to rebuild the walls. And by the way, in Nehemiah, it took place in 52 days. Think about that. 52 days to rebuild the walls. That's amazing for anybody who's ever been there, as I have been, around Jerusalem. That was a mighty, mighty task. And they faced danger. But in spite of all of that, they stayed faithful to the Lord. And I want you to see that here in Nehemiah chapter 4. Look with me at what it says in verses 7 to 9. Now when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Look with me at verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and to the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now look with me at verses 17 to 21. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work and the other holding a weapon. (laughs) As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeteer stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. There our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. Yeah, these people were working with a weapon in one hand and basically a trowel in the other. And they remained faithful in spite of the danger that was around them. So as you can see, the people were not passive in this project. And they shouldn't have been. They took precautions, but through it all, they trusted in the Lord. Because it was a God-ordained task. God had directed them back to do that very thing. To rebuild the walls. And so they could trust Him to be with them, to encourage them, and give them all that they needed to do in that project. And He did. So God fought for them. He protected them. This leads me to that wonderful psalm in which I believe all of us have been reminded over and over again. Turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Every so often, even in my devotions, I have to take some time to read this wonderful psalm. A psalm that probably some of you have memorized. This was... uh, The first passage of Scripture that I ever memorized. 
I was about six or seven years old. My mom had left my brother and I at this elderly lady's home while she went shopping. And so she was doing some daycare. And what did she do? She pulled out her Bible and she led us in Psalm 23 to memorize it. And then we came back at another time and we finished memorizing it. So it's been on my heart ever since. But what does it say? You know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or deep darkness, I fear no evil or harm for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beloved, do you believe that in your heart? I trust you do. The presence of the Lord is meant to encourage, to encourage your hearts in your walk with Him, and in all your service to Him. And so does it. It should. I mean, what better person to have at your side? Huh? (laughs) Almighty God, the King of Kings. His Word proclaimed then of His presence. We have His Word today. Over and over again throughout Scripture of His presence and His protection. Embrace that promise. It's just as much for us today as it was for them. Now to another promise of God's care and guidance. And we see it in verses 6 to the first part of verse 9. Look at what... Haggai goes on to say, by the direction of the Lord, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens, and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. So what is captured here in those verses? What's another promise? It's simply this. Be encouraged by God's provision. Be encouraged by God's provision. And I do take this. From what is said in verses 7 and 8. However, this section of scripture that I just read is prophetic. And thus, it's not going to occur until the return of the Messiah to establish his kingdom and reign from his temple. Indeed, what the people observed there at the moment was meager compared to the temple of Solomon. Yet God would provide presently. That's so clear from verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. That's a declarative statement about God. Everything belongs to God. 
He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But indeed, God would provide in the future even more so. Actually, the, the glory that is mentioned there of the future temple there in verses 7 and in verse 9 is really more than just treasure beautifying the temple, although that will be there. It's actually the presence of Christ. That's what it is. I like what one writer said concerning this. By building this post-exilic temple, the people would help advance God's program of manifesting Himself in a central place of worship. Their work was more than merely constructing a building. It was a spiritual work which would ultimately culminate in God's millennial program. Yeah. And so what Yahweh wanted here was for them to have the bigger picture. That though what they were working on right at the present time didn't look all that great, there was something special about this work for the future. And therefore, it should encourage and inspire them in the moment. Now, having said all of this, there is a couple of interpretive issues to highlight. And so I just want you to bear with me for a moment because I think this is very, very important. Look with me back at verses 6 to the first part of verse 7, where it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while. In other words, what he's saying there is that this happened in the past, but it's also going to happen in the future. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. The sea and also the dry land. I will shake all the nations. Now this shaking had taken place definitely in Egypt and also at Sinai for sure. But it will also happen again in a more dramatic way during the tribulation time. Because we're talking here about the day of the Lord preparing for Christ's return and the millennial kingdom. And by the way, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29, talk about that very thing. In fact, quoting verses 6 from this prophecy here in chapter 2. But then I want you to notice what he goes on to say in verse 7. As a result of God's shaking. And they, that is the nations, will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That word wealth there has been translated desire in some versions and understood as referring to Christ. I just want you to know that I don't take that position. That doesn't make me right and everybody else wrong. <laughs> Or those who believe that as right and I'm wrong. I will say here that the Hebrew word that undergirds wealth here refers to that which is precious, valuable, treasure. I do believe that the NASB and the ESV get it right. But besides that, the context of verse 8 that flows out of verse 7 supports this. 
as it says there, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He's referring back to the wealth that's mentioned there in verse 7. However, having said that, I do believe, as I mentioned before, that the glory of verse 7 and verse 9 is ultimately the physical presence of Christ. We're not going to go there this morning, but write down Isaiah 60, 1 to 14. Isaiah 60, 1 to 14. It recaptures exactly what is said here. Isaiah 60, 1 to 14. In fact, today, this afternoon, as this is fresh in your mind, go and read that portion of Scripture, which supports what I just said. But I also want us to go to Zechariah at this time. Zechariah chapter 2. And the reason I'm going to Zechariah is because he's a contemporary of Haggai, speaking to these very things. All right? So Zechariah chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, and said to him, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now go with me to Zechariah 14, the very last chapter. Zechariah 14. And I want to read verses 12 to 16, which is talking here about the day of the Lord, preparing for the return of Christ and His millennial reign. Zechariah 14, beginning with verse 12. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongue will rot in their mouth. Yes, it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. And they will seize one another's hand. And the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. I believe this is talking about the battle of Armageddon here. And then he goes on to say this. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered. Gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Why? To beautify and repair the temple Lord. To build it. That is why. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that were against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So yes, Isaiah and Zechariah support what we were considering there earlier in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I do believe that the NASB and the ASB get it right. It should be translated wealth. But no doubt, the glory that is going to fill that temple will be the personal presence of Jesus Christ Himself. Now with all that said, it is important to understand that God wanted those people to be assured that as they worked on the temple at present and served Him, He would provide 
all they needed. As he says there in verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The Lord will provide. He would provide at present. Even Ezra spoke to that. But he would also provide in the future in ways that were beyond their comprehension. And you know, beloved, this same assurance should be embraced by us today. Turn with me, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 6, holding your space here in Haggai. As we work and serve the Lord, so many times we can get distracted by the things of the world. Maybe sometimes we lose a job and our needs are not being met like we expect. And so we get distracted. Our hearts move away from the Lord. What did the Lord Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 6, verse 25, He says, For this reason I say to you, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at verses 31 following. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Philippians 4.19 What did Paul say to the church at Philippi? But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Yes, it's easy to get sidetracked, distracted. Becoming concerned about the cares of this world. And I'm no different. Beloved, I can remember when I was at seminary. And I think I've shared this with you before. My wife had to have a surgery. And when it was all said and done, I think it was to cost us $28,000. Now, when you're at seminary, where does that come from? (laughs) I mean, as you think about it in your mind, where am I going to get all that money? Thankfully, at that time, I had insurance with Blue Cross Blue Shield. And it was very, very good. Uh, they covered 80, I think 20, through the first $1,000. And after that, it was 100% covered. In other words, I would only have to pay $1,000 on this operation. But again, where does that $1,000 come from? I mean, I was talking with Gary last week when he was at seminary. And yeah, $1,000 was hard to come by. So where was that going to come? But I didn't worry about it, although I was distracted Concerning that. And I can remember committing it to the Lord and thinking about how I'm going to handle it. And I remember there were people in our community group from the church there at Grace Community saying, uh, uh, so what was the cost and uh, do you have the money to, to care for this? And I said, well, at present we don't, but I'm trusting in the Lord. I, I don't know how it's going to come about. Well, it was about a week later after that, I walked to my mailbox at the seminary And there was an envelope with 10 $100 bills in it. To this day, I don't know where that came from. have no idea. But someone from the Lord laid it upon their heart, put that in that envelope and gave it to me. 
And uh, that whole bill was covered. But yeah, I can't deny I wasn't distracted at the moment, sidetracked, concerned about how I was going to take care of this bill in the midst of all this. But it reminded me of two things. Number one, of God's great treasure. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so I could remember thinking about that on that particular day. But also the shame of even doubting Him. Because with any God-ordained task, and I knew it was God's will for me to be there, He would provide. So why was I doubting in that moment? I found myself confessing my sin to the Lord and asking for His forgiveness and thanking Him for that rich blessing. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. You get distracted. Maybe you lose a job. You wonder where the next job is coming from. Maybe you're just getting by from day to day. The Lord will provide. So don't get distracted in the work of the Lord. Be encouraged by His presence and be encouraged by His provision. Indeed, this is what Yahweh God was reminding those people at that time. And it's for us today. Now, very quickly, there is one other promise that should encourage you regarding God's care and guidance. And it's found there in the second half of verse 9. Look what he goes on to say. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What's clear there? What's the promise? It's peace. It's peace. Be encouraged by God's peace. That phrase there, in this place, is referring to the future temple in Jerusalem where they will have peace or shalom. The word means wholeness, well-being, success. And this is because Christ will be there on His throne judging righteously. I mean, think about that. We've never known that. I mean, we've seen pagan people (laughs) reigning. And things are tough and bad all around us. But in that day, it will be Christ on His throne judging righteously. There will be peace. Look with me at Zechariah chapter 6 and what the prophet said there. He also speaks to this in chapter 8 of Zechariah. Zechariah 6. Verses 12 and 13. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch. That's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. And so you see the promise by another prophet other than just Haggai. You know, beloved, politically and socially speaking, there has been and is no peace 
at the present. There never has been. And there is no peace at the present. I mean, just think of this last year, for example, okay? All the COVID issues that (laughs) were going on, even in churches, there was a lack of unity and a lack of peace. Think about the war for the White House over the last year and the war that's still going on in the White House. The issues of racism all around us. Mass murders like we heard about this week there in California. The abortions that go on daily. And we could speak to so much more. There's no peace. It's because the unrighteous are ruling. The only peace that can be known today is in the hearts of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and walk with Him. That's the only peace. And it's an inward peace. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even Jesus said to His disciples the night before He was crucified, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. But beloved, one day, there will not only be peace inwardly, but also outwardly. <laughs> Aren't you looking forward to that day? Yeah, we don't know of it today. And we won't know of it until Christ reigns. So you have this prophet speaking to these people and reminding them of this. The peace The true peace that is to come. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, but you don't know God's peace in your heart. Is that possible? Yeah, it is. You're missing out on that wholeness and well-being of soul that is promised by God. My word to you then would be to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your only hope. There is no hope outside of Him. There is no peace outside of Him. He can be your peace. Now, beginning now, inwardly. A well-being of soul. And for those who have this wonderful relationship, we need to begin this morning by just praising God for that. That we are right with Him. And we've got something to look forward to in the future. When Christ reigns in peace. So continue to serve Him each day in light of this glorious promise of peace and the hope of the future. This is my prayer, not only for myself, but for you as well. You know, in this day and age that we live in, God's people need to hear the promises that were spoken this morning. We easily forget those promises. Once again, God's presence, God's provision, and then again, God's peace. Don't forget them. It's easy to remind me because I alliterated it this morning. It was alliterated in the text. (laughs) Yes, God's presence, God's provision, God's peace.
They will truly sustain you now as you work and serve him and then prepare you for the future reign of Christ. Again, I look forward to that day. You know, it's been said that to a previous generation, CBS newscaster Walter Cronkite was an authoritative voice. If he said it, it must be true. I think most of us, or a good number of us, remember those days with Walter Cronkite. From 1962 to 1981, he stood for good journalism in middle America. His reports on politics, the Kennedy assassination, the Vietnam War, the first moon landing, Watergate, and other national and world events were models of objectivity, compassion, and hard-nosed integrity. When he died at the age of 92, his obituaries invariably cited his reputation as the most trusted man in America. Well, the writer who shared that said this, if we can trust the words of a television anchor man as reliable, how much more can we trust the word of God as completely certain? Just as you heard this morning... And so these promises should revitalate you in your service for the Lord. And I pray it does for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word this morning and for what we've seen. That word that was for those people then was about the bigger picture, the days ahead. Certainly, God, they had your presence. They had your provision at the present but even more so for the future and peace. God, we have those same promises today. Fill our hearts with those things. Help us to be reminded of them as we get sidetracked and distracted as those people did. Help us to be encouraged in the work of the Lord for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.